Hi folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 611 of the Survival Podcast. It is Thursday, February 24th, 2011. That means we're almost out a month already because it's a short month. It also means that we, uh, we're only a few days away from a really big interview, folks. Um, Monday afternoon, so you guys will hear the interview Tuesday. Uh, I'll be interviewing Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, famous for his wine podcast and famous for teaching people how to make the most out of an online business. Come on the show and talk to you about how to build something of your own with your own personal brand so you can be self-sufficient and self-reliant in more ways than just having food stored in your home. He's uh, one of my real inspirations. It's going to be great to have him on the air. And tomorrow we'll have a great interview. Probably the most popular guest we've ever had is coming back. That's Paul Wheaton. He'll be coming back to talk about Wafati structures, which uh, are low-cost, uh, easy-to-build structures you can build that are, you know, earth berm is the best way to describe them. And uh, he'll be talking about that and answering some questions that came up after his last interview. What that means is that since tomorrow's going to be an interview, tomorrow's Friday, today we're going to do your calls. So listener call show today instead of Friday. So call in Friday has become call in Thursday. Got a bunch of great calls lined up today. I'm almost caught up on the backlog. I'm, uh, I'm up to calls from two weeks ago. So that's about where I need to be. So keep coming with the fresh calls now so I don't run out of them. And uh, there are a few calls from back uh, uh, maybe a month ago that I'm kind of weeding through a little at a time. Uh, trying to fit them into the right type of show. But basically, if you've called in and you haven't heard your call on the air yet, and uh, it's been more than a couple weeks since you made your call, you might want to call your question again. It means there's probably an audio problem, uh, and I could not use your call. Uh, remember, when you call in, uh, speak clear, distinct, and uh, brief. You get about two minutes to make your uh, your question or your point, and then the machine will cut you off. You can call in. That number is 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. All right, let's go ahead and knock out the housekeeping and get to that first call. Uh, housekeeping item number one today is uh, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Emergency Essentials. They're one of my favorite providers of long-term storage food and other emergency gear. Uh, they are one of the uh, longest-term online suppliers, and they have an awesome catalog as well. I really recommend that you get by their website. Of course, you can find their banner at the survivalpodcast.com in the right-hand column with all of our sponsors. Get by there, and if you have not already done so, request their catalog. It's uh, kind of like prepper porn, I guess, to page through that catalog and look at all the different options that they have and things like that. And they can really do a lot from both a supply side and an education side to help you get more prepared. Make sure you check out their articles on their website as well. Uh, a lot of great stuff there about getting started with food storage and other emergency preps. Next up today, Western Botanicals. Uh, you guys need to give uh, Dr. Kyle Christensen some business over there. Go by and see what he has that you can use. I'm sure there's something. Because you guys owe him a debt of gratitude. Without his uh, herbal throat spray, 
made primarily of a variety of herbs and wild cherry bark. I don't know if there would have been a survival podcast for a couple weeks, me dealing with this throat thing. It was the one thing that got me through it. He's also been very kind to my wife and has helped her uh, with her migraines and some other things with some of his herbals. So check out what uh, check out his website, see if there's anything there you need. And remember, if you need help, pick the phone up and call those guys. They will give you great consultative health. They also have a membership program called a preferred membership program. That is $50 a year. And with that $50 a year, you get 25% off everything you buy. Now, that saves some of their customers hundreds and hundreds of dollars a year if they use a lot of herbal supplements. But remember, if you join the Member Support Brigade, you get that for free. Now, how much is Member Support Brigade? $50. How much is that one benefit worth? $50. So Members Brigade is a, uh, a great value in of itself, and that one benefit is huge if you need to use herbal supplements of any type. Remember, everything they have over there is either organically grown or wild-crafted. I'm going to wrap the housekeeping up quick today. Quick today. I am going to remind you guys, though, I am running a sale on Members Brigade. You can use the discount code word POSITIVE from yesterday's show about positive thought in a world of disasters and get your first year for only $30. I just gave you a benefit there that's worth $50. So uh, there is some real value add to the Members Brigade. And remember, you're supporting the show at about $0.18 cents an episode. With that, let's go ahead and take your first call today. Hi, Jack. This is Jose calling you from uh, Northern Virginia, and I'm calling to find out uh, if you can maybe address um, something I've been looking into called a Faraday cage and how that may help uh, prepare for um, potential solar storms. Thanks. Love your show. Bye. Well, I'm not an expert on Faraday cages. Let's give me, let me give you a little bit of information about them and a little bit more information about things like protecting yourself from... Um, excessive solar activity uh, or an EMP that would be something would come from the use of something like a, a nuclear weapon detonated high in the atmosphere designed to shut down electrical systems. Um, a Faraday cage is basically, uh, the best way to think about it is a grounded enclosure. Uh, so there's a ton of ways to make them. It can be anything from a box of metal to uh, you know a wood-based cage with a mesh around it. Probably the best mesh you can use. It's more expensive, but it's probably the best for its overall protection, both at the high and low frequency uh, spectrums. Is going to be made of brass because it's got a lot of copper in it, so it's an even better conductor than something like aluminum. Um, and you really want to get some iron into the mix if you want to really protect the lower end frequencies. This is based on my understanding of things. But the big thing with a Faraday cage, I see people build these things. They put them in forums online and all. They're like, I'm going to put my radios in here and all so that if anything happens, I've got protection so that equipment is going to work. Well, a lot of them, you see the little cage and there's no ground. If you don't ground a Faraday cage, it is uh, is not likely to work very well for you. Basically, what you're doing is you're taking a grounding. So that's something that goes into the earth or into a, a common ground of an electrical system or what have you. And... When the electromagnetic waves hit the metallic part of the cage, instead of penetrating through, they kind of cancel each other out on all sides. But the big thing is all of that, that force, all of that, that, that uh, energy goes to ground. Just like lightning striking the ground, if for lack of a better explanation, something that would be easy to understand. If the lightning strikes the ground, the electricity goes into the ground. If lightning strikes an object, it goes through the object and eventually find its, finds its way to the ground and destroys the object in the process or damages the object in the process. 
So what the Faraday cage is doing is essentially taking all that electromagnetic radiation, shielding the, whatever's held inside of it, and taking it to the ground. So the big thing with a Faraday cage is you have to ground it. Now there's a lot of things that can be done to protect um, equipment and vehicles without going to the level of a Faraday cage. One of the things that I've seen suggested, I don't know if it'll work, but it seems to me that in all but the most extreme circumstances it would, would be simply hanging a ground, a chain that goes to the ground of your vehicle that drags on the ground. And literally, you know, like you, you, you know, like you see sometimes a pickup running around. I don't know if these guys plan to do that or not, where you see that happening. And uh, as long as that chain's in contact with the ground, the vehicle shell itself will, in some level, now not 100%, depending on the severity here, but at some level, act as its own Faraday cage. Because the magnetic radiation hits the, the vehicle's body and ends up going through and down to the ground and simply contacting the ground. That's not as good as having a grounding rod pounded into the ground. So, for instance, if you wanted to take this to an extreme, uh, you could have grounding rods at your home. Whenever your vehicles are parked, have a grounding strap that you attach to that grounding rod. Now, the only problem with that is if you're out driving around when one of these events occurs, it's not going to do you a hill of beans, a difference of good. But at least if you have multiple vehicles and you always keep them grounded, whatever's at home should be protected. Another thing that you could do to kind of make a makeshift Faraday cage and keep some of your stuff safe would be go out and get one of those metal sheds and ground it. See, if you don't ground it, it's not going to do anything. But if you ground it, it should provide some reasonable level of protection of everything that's inside it. Again, that's about as good as I could do on this subject. If you can't tell, worrying about EMP is not at the top of my list of concerns uh, at the present time. We actually do have a little Faraday cage. We keep the uh, the radios in, and uh, but that's about it. That's about all we've done with that. And uh, Otherwise, I, I see so many other things that I'm concerned with. I do think that the grid is more at risk from a solar type of EMP, a solar flare uh, type of, uh, of uh, solar radiation, solar magnetism event, uh, than things like your radio or, or things like that. Because these events are hard to predict their real impact and severity. But what we know about anything like this is... When it, when it hits something that's metallic, when it hits something that's electronic, basically it sees it like an antenna. And the larger that antenna is, the greater the reception, lack of a better term, because I'm not an expert on this, of that signal is. So when you look at our grid, and we've got these wires strewn out for miles and miles and miles, think of the massive level of conduction that they uh, offer the massive antenna that they represent, and all of that, that huge amount of magnetism, electromagnetism going into there. And when this happened in the 1800s, before the days of the telephone, but we did have telegraph lines out there, very low voltage lines, some of them fried and melted to the ground. So I'm more concerned about the grid and anything attached to the grid than like a battery-operated radio or something like that that is disconnected from the grid. Not that they're not at risk. I don't want a million emails from you guys going, you don't understand, it could fry a radio, it could fry... I understand that. I completely agree with that. I'm just saying that the more severe the storm or the more severe the event, the more that the peripheral device is in danger. But... The, the the type of storm we had in the 1800s would be more likely to have an adverse effect on the grid. Of course, all the awful consequences that go along with that. Uh, so things like if you have a generator, 
uh, when it's not in use, keeping it grounded is probably a great idea. Uh, if we had uh, an event predicted, it would probably be a, a really good idea to just shut your main off in advance of the event if it looked like it was going to be a big one. Uh, one of the things that our uh, our illustrious uh, government could do to help us, our utility companies all, could be to shut down power in, in certain areas to help mitigate this. My concern with how well that will work is those telegraph wires sat there with almost nothing on them as far as power went, and they fried. So I worry about the infrastructure getting fried, even if it doesn't fry the transformers or the power generation stations, if they take pr appropriate precautions. Uh, so that's my bigger concern there. Uh, good question, though. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. It's your buddy, John, from West Virginia again. I was going to ask you, might want to talk about uh, what you carry in your pockets. Myself being from West Virginia, I was born with a pocket knife in my diaper, and I was want to hear what you have to say about carrying a pocket knife, uh, flashlight, multi-tool, you know, whatever a man needs to have in his pockets. Thanks a lot. Uh, you know, um, what you're really talking about there, John, is EDC or everyday carry, and uh, a show on that is long overdue, but I've been procrastinating on getting deep into it because... I have wanted to have Ron Hood come on the show and discuss that. And Ron, of course, is dealing with his recovery from uh, prostate cancer, which they believe is linked to his service in Vietnam and exposure to Agent Orange. Uh, and with Ron set to come on the air, I don't want to do a whole show on EDC, but I can certainly answer your question here with some basic things. Number one, pocket knife, definitely. Um, talking about maybe some of the stuff I actually carry, um, the knife that I currently carry is the... Um, Cold Steel uh, knife made for law enforcement use, called, of course, the Cold Steel Lawman. And I've carried a lot of knives for EDC. And um, that's the knife now that I carry kind of clipped on the inside of my pocket. I find it to be a good balance. It's not a large knife. It's not something I use when I go out in, in the bush or anything like that. But for day-to-day -day use, it's sufficiently large and tough and up to the tasks that I need an EDC knife for. I also carry one of the uh, the, the Gerber EAB uh, lights. I've done several video or did a video on that, and I think it is one of the best ED tool, EDC tools you can get your hands on. Um, and it's EAB stands for Exchange Blade. It's basically a little tiny knife uh, that can double as a money clip or clip to the inside of your pockets that takes a standard razor blade, uh, so you exchange a blade. The reason I carry that is for a lot of kind of junk, crappy work that doesn't require something really brute strong, uh, like opening boxes and things like that, getting gum tape. You know, like some of the boxes you open, the tape is not just tape. It's like gooey, gummy tape. And even though it wouldn't dull your knife, it gets crud all over your knife. Well, with an EAB as part of your kit, um, you know, you uh, you can open that stuff. And when the blade's just crappy, you flip it around. And when it's been flipped around, once you throw it away. And you can buy enough blades for... 10 bucks to keep that thing going for two or three years. So uh, I use that for a lot of my grunt work. As far as a flashlight, a listener, I can't remember who for the life of me, sent me a tip on a, a product by a company called Streamlight. And uh, the, the, the product that he recommended that I now carry everywhere I go is the Streamlight 66118 Stylus Pro. I'll put links to uh, all of this stuff in today's show notes to people that want to look them up on Amazon. And uh, if you can buy them locally and save some money, do that. But if you're going to buy them on Amazon, consider going through my link. I'll make a, a quarter or something like that. But uh, it does help the stuff around here. But uh, the, the uh, Streamlight Light 
is is almost as bright as is a full size tactical light. It's not as bright, but it's almost as bright. And uh, comes with a little holster, which I promptly threw away. I just had no need for, but carried inside the pocket of a pair of jeans back in the corner, just like you'd carry a knife. So I carry my knife on my right side, my light on my left side. You completely forget that it's even there until you need it. And I've used that for everything from, uh, you know, trying to find something wrong with a car in the dark. We get to our bug out location in Arkansas. It's very dark up there when we first get there before we turn on the lights and things like that. Uh, down to we were recently shopping for some furniture. And uh, looking at tables, and I, if I was going to buy a table, I wanted a solid wood table, not this laminate crap. The two or three years after you have it, the laminate starts to look bad. And uh, so I was crawling under tables at the furniture store with my little light, and the people were looking at me like I was all weird. Because by looking under there, I could look for wood grain and see if the wood grain that I saw on the bottom matched the wood grain on the top. And I knew whether I was looking at solid wood or some laminated piece of crap. Uh, so I think that is a great EDC tool. I carry a variety of other things on my keychain. I carry uh, cold, cold Steel I'm a big fan of, and the more I learn about them, the more I like them. Uh, they make a brand of pepper spray called Inferno. Uh, little key ring size uh, Inferno costs about six bucks. So I carry one of those every six months, whether I needed to or not. I throw one away and replace it. I figure if I'm going to trust my life to that, where I might be in a dangerous situation and result, you know, use that first rather than something for deadly force, uh, it better work, and it better work every time. So about every six months we replace them. I actually keep a large can of that at the front door of the house, the front door of the bug-out location. It's always there. If my wife walks the dogs alone, instead of just a little keychain, I say take the bigger can with you. Um, not just for people, but for dogs. I told the story before, real, brief, real briefly, I'll tell it again. Uh, I used pepper spray to ward off a neighbor's uh, pit bull, uh, where I was able to not have to go tell the guy, hey, I shot your dog. And I believe that without the pepper spray, uh, the other option was a 9mm. And the dog was very close to getting one because... Uh, I know how much damage they can do, and she was as close as I was going to let her get, and in a posture that indicated she did intend to bite. Uh, but I think because of the confidence I had by being armed, I, I really didn't have to do very much. She did eventually back off. Uh, but that is a huge thing with me as a non-lethal means of defense. On my key ring, I also carry a fire striker, and I carry my survival podcast branded uh, uh, Swiss Army Trekker knife. So I have a minimum of three cutting utensils on me everywhere that I go. I have a Swiss Army knife on my keys, my lawman in my pocket, and my EAB for grunt work. And with those, I can do so much that, you know, it would be nice to carry a big chopper around, but there's, you know, law, knife laws in Texas, honestly, where uh, anything over, I think it's five and a half or five and a quarter inches is considered a weapon, and you can only carry it uh, if you are engaged in the pursuit of fish or game or other outdoor activities. So even though you can have a concealed carry permit, you can carry uh, a, a pair of handguns uh, with, you know, a hundred rounds of ammunition if you want to. You can't carry a knife like that. Um, which uh, you can, you know, debate the wisdom of that, but I have to fall within the law. So that's the the basics of what I carry. I carry a few other things, but I think I'll save on that until we uh, until we do the show. One other thing I do carry is a little tiny um, pill contender with some tinder in it uh, to go along with that fire striker. I'll throw that in today, but. I'm going to try to wait on the everyday, everyday carry uh, to go in deep about it until we get Ron uh, back completely on the men and get him on the show because I'd really love to do that with him. He's a great friend, a trusted friend, and been a friend for a long time. If you guys want to help Ron out, what they're saying is they don't want any donations. Go buy their store, buy some DVDs, buy their new uh, their new knife, that 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 huge uh, the, the Woodsman knife. 
the Woodmaster. That's what it's called, the Woodmaster, that big thing that Buck's making for him now. You know, go out and spend some money in their store if you want to help out the hoods. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, this is Jeff Venture out of Cleveland, Ohio. I just wanted to call and say love the cast and also have a question. What games do you recommend keeping in bug-out bag and survival kits, board games, card games, that you think would keep everyone occupied? If I can, I'd like to make one suggestion, a game called Settlers of Catan. It's a really compact, really fun board game. It deals with basically homesteading, growing plants, mining for ore, that sort of thing, building up civilization. It's kind of a game I think you'd like if you played it. You might want to try and look it up. All right, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Well, I'll definitely look up that Settlers of Catan and, and check it out. And I like the idea that you said it was a really compact uh, board game. Uh, that, I think, is a uh, important thing when it comes to board games and a bug-out bag. All the space is at a premium, which is why I've always been an advocate of the best thing you can have is a couple decks of playing cards. With a couple decks of playing cards, you can come up with so many different games from things, you know, typical things like poker and blackjack and things like that. To, I mean, Army, the big thing, the big game was spades. With a little kid that you can't teach, uh, a, a, you know, a lot of uh, complex rules very fast. You can play Go Fish or you can play War. Uh, there's so many things you can do with cards. So that's always been the big one for me. On the board games, I have to tell you, I'm not a big fan of board games. I Even my, to my own family's dismay, I mean, even my son was growing up and he was all into stuff like that, I just had to force myself to play them. I am not the kind of guy that get, likes to get around a board game and, and, and play it for a long period of time. The stuff I actually like to do is the kind of trivia games and stuff like that, and uh, the scene it stuff, you know, that's not really good for uh, power outages or whatever, but I guess you got backup power, we've done it. You know, like the Friends Edition or, or what have you, and My family doesn't really like to play that with me because with my memory retention, it's uh, it's kind of one-sided. And it's not about being smart. It's about just being able to remember like everything, including things you don't want to remember. Uh, so I'll have to check out that Settlers of Catan. Some other things, though, uh, that I would think that might make sense to go in there, along with those cards, uh, there's a game that I learned to play a long time ago with cards called Cribbage. And uh, I always enjoyed playing that game. It's It's very strategic. Uh, it's got a lot of rules in it. The first time you play with somebody that knows how to play it and they start throwing points on you, explaining to you why, you almost feel like they're saying, well, see, it's Tuesday. And because it's Tuesday and this is a jack, then uh, then I get uh, get some points. Uh, but when you learn the rules, it's actually not that way. It's not like the other person's just making them up. And when you do, it's kind of a very engaging game. And it's, it's a little bit more, um, I'd say, strategic and a little bit more engaging than a lot of other card games, especially when you're looking at playing with just two people. Some of the card games, I did, you know, I did enjoy Spades in the Army, but you're generally playing with a group of four. And a lot of card games get a lot better with a group of four. Cribbage is really a game designed to be played you know, one player against another, and they make some pretty little cool fold-up boards. I'll put a link to one that I like. Uh, in today's show notes, you can check that out as well. So uh, that you know, to me, that's always what it's been about is cards. And when you're in the military, you bring your cards. Every care package that comes from some relief group has playing cards in it. Uh, but board games, just not big on them. But I, I guess that whatever your family plays uh, is probably a good idea uh, to, uh, to to do that. And I also think maybe that you could look at. I mean, like. I guess the other two games that I actually enjoyed playing were chess and checkers. And there's some pretty compact versions of those that you could include. And I mean, chess is so mentally engaging. 
And I guess that's why I like it better than a lot of the board games, you know, like Sorry and Risk and all that. Uh, what is the, the Life and all the Parcheesi and whatever. You know, chess actually requires you to think so strategically and so far in the future that it's good at pulling you out. Now, don't take that to mean that I'm good at chess. I'm actually a terrible chess player. I'm awful at the game. Uh, but I do enjoy it, and uh, I really enjoy it when I can find somebody that's as bad as me, and we can play a really long game of suck chess together, you know, where we both suck, but we both think we're good because we're equally matched. Uh, but anybody that's got a modicum of skill at chess has been able to best me pretty quick, but I still enjoy the experience. So uh, chess and checkers, I think, would be uh, something to look at. There's, you know, a lot of things that can be created, too, on the fly. I mean, don't hesitate to come up with a game. You know, if you're somewhere where you're outdoors, and it's something as simple as getting a stick and a few stones and playing kind of a version of impromptu horseshoes. How close can you get the rock? Come up with your own rules. I think uh, there's a lot to be said for things like that. You know, a makeshift version of bocce or something. Um, you know, don't do stupid stuff like we did as soldiers. We used to play a game called chicken with our knives, where one soldier would stand and the other would toss a knife at the guy's foot. And see how close he could get. And the first guy to move his foot uh, lost. And if you if you if your boot got glanced by the knife, and it didn't matter if it got glanced or not. Hopefully it got glanced, and you didn't move. Uh, you won. So either the first person to get hit uh, wins, or the first person to move loses. Uh, don't play stupid stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of other creative things you can come up with. Best I can do on that one for you. I'll definitely check out that uh, Settlers of Kata and Kata, uh, whatever that was. I'll, I'll have to re-listen to it and uh, see if I can find a link for people to check that out. That might be really cool. All right, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. John from North Georgia. Enjoy the show a lot. wondering if you're familiar with Life Straw. I know that water is probably our most precious resource, and we all talk about ways to uh, save water, uh, stockpile water, and some filtration systems. I think another podcast on the Discovery Channel, Stuff You Should Know, they covered Life Straw, which is for third world countries. Essentially, it's a 12-inch device that uh, third world people can carry around their neck and uh, literally suck bad water, and it comes through filtered. The cost of a Life Straw device is about $5.00 seems like ordering five or ten of these would make a worthwhile investment for a family and be great for a bug-out bag. Much cheaper solution than maybe hitting some commercial alternatives. You can maybe check it out. I've looked online and not been able to find a supplier domestically. I'm continuing to look. It comes out of Europe, and uh, I think it'd be valuable to your readers and listeners. Thanks. That's an interesting concept. There are devices like that available here in the States, but they're not six bucks a piece. Uh, the one that I have in my bug out bag is a uh, pure water straw, and uh, it's it's a pretty good product, and it is a ninety you know ninety nine 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 like a five nine pure uh, filtration result. When you looked at things like Girardia, Cryptosporidium viruses, and things like that, so for drinking the typical water that you'd be forced to drink in a, in a tough situation. And, of course, if you use any kind of chemical treatment as well, it would improve its overall results. But they're about 20 bucks. I'll provide a link to that as well. I looked up the official trademarked Life Straw, which is one word, capital L, capital S, uh, that are being given out all over the world to, uh, to help people survive in places where they otherwise would get sick by the water they're forced to drink. And uh, the, the devices that are available here in the United States, uh, like my pure water straw and others, are actually more compact. 
and uh, maybe better suited in a civil, you know, a, a more advanced society where we have a little bit of money uh, than these things. I also would tell you that I think if we did, uh, as consumers get access to this here in the states, it's probably not going to be about six bucks a piece. The number quoted of six dollars. This company takes in contributions, and it's probably a worthy company. I'm not putting that down, but they take contributions in uh, as a charity. So that they can distribute these all over the world, and it's probably that it costs them six bucks to deliver one. Uh, so that's probably more about you know if you donate six hundred dollars, you're going to account for six hundred life straws being handed out, saving lives, and that's all well and good. My point is that even if we do get this product here in the states, they probably won't be six bucks. It'll probably be twelve or eighteen or twenty, just like what's here. I will fire off an email to a couple of the sponsors though today about this product and ask them if they. Uh, if they would be interested in either contacting these people about making this available in the United States, becoming a, an importer for them, uh, or maybe finding a product that is more suited to our needs here in America. Because I checked, um, and a lot of them have small water filtration devices, but nobody seems to have a direct straw filter type device. So uh, three people spring to mind for this. It would be uh, Safe Castle, um, uh, the Berkey guy, who may not do it because he's so you know tied in with Berkey and would not want to hurt his relationship there, and of course uh, ready-made resources. So I'll fire off something to all of them today. Now they all do have very compact water filtration technology, SteriPen stuff. Uh, the Berkey guy's got the sport bottles; those are great. He donated those to uh, Brandon uh, and his organization went down to provide uh, relief to Haiti. So you know something as simple as a Berkey sports bottle may be actually better. And here's Here's why I like a small device like a sport bottle type filter or something more than a straw. To use that straw filter, and it, I even carry one and I still feel this way, I have to bend down to a stream or whatever and I have to drink. And what that means is that I don't really have a way to take water with me. If I have a container, I can drink from the container, but now I've got two devices and there's some redundancy there and I understand that and all, but something like a Berkey sport bottle uh, or a SteriPen product or something like that, um, I have water and I can take it with me and I can filter it with one device. And I kind of like that approach. Um, I also really like the, the, uh, the, uh, lifesaver products available from ready-made resources. I think as far as field filtering goes, uh, they're the most, uh, the most effective and the most rugged stuff that is available for out in the field. Stuff like the jerry can, like the lifesaver, uh, 10,000. Uh, allows you to filter an awful lot of water and carry an awful lot of water. You know, basically five gallons with you. Now it's big and bulky. It doesn't go in a bug out bag, but I think with water, we need to think very broad. So tiny things like a straw, middle sized things like a bottle or a sport bottle type filter or something like that, and large portable devices like the jerry can. I think the well, and, and for my home use, again, I use a Berkey system. I think that's the best thing to be sitting in your home to look good, to work, to be economical, and to provide great filtration of the water you drink every day. Kind of a broad spectrum there. But we'll check into this Life Straw thing, and I'll put a link to the similar product, but again, it's not six bucks, it's 20 bucks uh, that I keep in my, uh, my bug out bags. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. My name is Sean. I'm right outside of Little Rock, Arkansas. I really like your show. Um, I have a few questions on Google Culture for you. I looked this stuff on the Internet, and I really couldn't find out this specific stuff. Every time I see somebody doing a bed, they're putting the wood on top of the existing ground. I wonder if it would be okay if I dig down about four foot, fill that up with wood, logs, six twigs, then cover it with two to three foot of soil. 
so that when it decomposes, it doesn't go below grade. Um, and I was also wondering if I could use pine and gum trees to fill up this bottom area. I saw on the Internet where it said not to use cedar, black walnut, and black locust, but um, I really got some pine and gum trees I want to get rid of on my property, and I um, couldn't find anything about putting them in there, if it would be good, bad, or indifferent. Um, my next question is, I have a five-acre pond, and I was wondering if I dig this next to the pond so that I went down and got into the groundwater there, if that would be a good or a bad thing, so the groundwater could feed the bed. I wouldn't have to water it, or would it be too much water so it would mildew? Just a few questions for you. I appreciate it. Thank you much. Bye. Well, it's a question I've had, too, because uh, I've seen people do it both ways, both digging down and building up. And my belief is the main reason that people build up is it's easier. Uh, I'll definitely talk to Paul about this tomorrow when I have him on the show, and I think it'll it'll help out a lot for, for both of us to learn more about that. But I absolutely see no reason why going subterranean or building up really is going to be that much of a difference. I'm a big believer in overall a raised bed type of concept, so I would be more inclined to do like what you're saying. I've seen people do it where it's flat. You know, they just they just dig it down and they 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 pack it back in and that's it. And they you know they, the excess dirt they take off and I guess as their as their as their pile rots, they just backfill it, uh, which makes perfect sense to me that that would work. So um, yeah, I think that you can go down, you can go up, you can go up and down. I mean, it's it's really up to you and what you want in your final product because the concept is still the same. I've got a big spongy mass of rotting wood underneath where the plants are growing. Uh, but again, if you think about it for, for people, especially those that may not have excavation equipment or things like that, and you want to do a large bed, it would be much easier to pile up your logs and pile topsoil on top of them uh, than to put them down into the ground. So I think that's the main reason you see those high, uh, big culture beds where I just kind of don't want something that high on my property. I don't want big, giant berms. I want nice, you know, somewhat raised beds, maybe coming up a foot or two, uh, not something three foot, four foot high. Sepp Holzer, you know, has some of these things that are six foot tall. And it's not that it doesn't work great, it's just a matter of aesthetics for me. So, uh, there you go on that. On the pine uh, and uh, gum, I think the gum would be no issue at all. On the pine, uh, they do have some videos. Paul even has some out where a guy used uh, spruce tree, so call it the same thing. And, uh, it works okay. It would be preferable to use any type of hardwood over any type of pine because of some of the acidifying effects of the pine trees. But that's usually mitigated over time. Uh, but the pine can be used. But you would, I mean, if you really wanted to um, kind of find a, a great use for that would be to plant things in there that generally like acidic soil. So a hugel culture bed composed of pine uh, that was growing, let's say, blueberry and cranberry seems to be a really great idea. You're kind of a peanut butter and jelly situation, a match made in heaven. So you might want to take your pines and put more acid-loving plants into the beds that utilize the pine. The gum shouldn't be an issue. Black walnut, black locust, the big reason they tell you not to use that is because it takes forever to rot. and You want that wood to rot and become spongy. So you put something down there like black locust, you might dig that up 10 years from now, and it's as hard as a hunk of concrete. So it's a bigger issue there. Black walnut can have some very detrimental effects uh, to other things growing, so it's kind of both. Now, I just can't see anybody bearing black walnut anyway. 
Uh, even down to small pieces of black walnut. I mean, for, for pistol stocks and things, it's like one of the most beautiful uh, woods known to man. So I, I just don't know why anybody would do that. But the black locust, the problem there is that that gone thing doesn't rot. I mean, there's I've seen I've seen 50 year old fence posts made out of black locust, uh, and they're they're solid as a rock. So that's that's the I, that's my guess anyway. I'm not a hugaculture expert. I just learned about this like you did, uh, you know, maybe not much longer ago than you did when I put it on the show. I only knew about it for a couple of days, uh, but that's my understanding there. Now your pond, I don't think there's any way a hugaculture bed is going to get too wet. Because the wood itself is a sponge, and it's going to take up as much as it can, and it's going to stop. Now, if it's a swamp, that's different. But as far as having water available to draw from, I think it's very, very self-regulating, and that's why it works. My concern with digging down in a pond, down to a level where water from the pond would seep through, is you're effectively creating a breach in your impoundment. Uh, but I also know from another call you made that you run an excavating company, so you may have something different in mind. So I'm going to answer this with a caveat. I would be concerned for the structure of the impoundment, but if you do it in a way where that's not effective and just some of the water somehow becomes available to the hugaculture bed, I think it would be very self-regulating, and it would be a very, very effective way to do things That said, also knowing where you live, because uh, you divulged that information to me in another call, um, you have a lot of rainfall in your area. You probably don't need to worry about it. So it's not that it wouldn't work, it's just it probably isn't necessary. And if anything, by being wetter than normal, it may accelerate the decomposition of the wood and reduce the overall life expectancy of your uh, hugelkultur bed, but... That's I'm way out into speculation at that point when I say that. I have no facts at, at all to ground that speculation on. It's just kind of one of those gut things. So uh, if you can get more moisture to your culture bed, uh, my instinct is going to be very self-regulating. But tune in tomorrow before we get into the Wafa deconstruction. Uh, there's a lot of questions about culture from other people that I have for Paul uh, that will be kind of the intro to the show, and then we'll do the Wafati structure for the main body of the show. And Paul, folks, is going to be back on um, a number of times uh, to talk about a lot of really great stuff. Uh, so that'll be the first uh, follow-up interview of many with him. Let's go ahead and take the next question. Hey, Jack, this is Andy out here at Fort Bragg again. Got a specific question for you on how to store gas or your ideas of how to store gasoline container in a minivan. Uh, I heard on your episodes where you've talked about having extra gasoline and then as you go to the service station and as you before you pump, you take the gasoline from your extra gas can, put it in your tank, then refill that one. But specifically, I don't think how the, Anyway, I'm trying to figure out a type of gas can that would work in my wife's minivan because I think uh, the cans I've seen, they leak. Unless it's a jerry can, I can't see getting away with that in a minivan. So any thoughts on any sort of gasoline container that does not leak and wouldn't have the smell of gasoline in the van? Uh, any thoughts or a way to secure it? I, I have to say that overall I don't you. know. The best can that you can get is a good you know, military-grade jerry can. Um, and, and that's going to keep fumes from being an issue and things like that. And they, I'll tell you this, they, they have to be vented every once in a while. And I'm spoiled because I have pickup trucks, so I'm able to carry extra fuel externally. Uh, I don't know if you can come up with a way to carry a few extra gallons of fuel uh, externally with the minivan. 
And, um, you know, we keep a very small can of diesel fuel. Uh, it doesn't seem to create any odors or problems in the trunk of the, uh, the Jetta. It's strapped down so that it doesn't move. And every time that I fill up, I empty it into the vehicle and make sure that, you know, it's getting some venting because there's expansion and contraction issues with fuel. And that's why they generally put a breather valve on a fuel can. Um, but the can I have for that is just a plain, simple two and a half gallon can like you would buy anywhere. And it hasn't really been a problem for me, but I've heard from other people that try to get fuel inside vehicles, even in trunks, that have had, you know, odor problems. And it can, you know, probably ruin a car uh, if you get too much odor in there that won't go away. So I don't have a good solution for that. Uh, my solution for the trucks long term is I'm going to install a, uh, a, a toolbox on each truck that has a a toolbox on top and a fuel can on the, on the bottom that actually allows you to carry like an extra 50 to 70 gallons depending on the options of fuel. And uh, I think that's a great option. If, but you see, you got a van. So I, I have maybe made a poor recommendation in the past when I said carry fuel in your vehicle if you don't have a way to do so externally. And uh, I, if anybody has a solution to this problem, Because I think it, it's really a great idea for everybody to carry an extra, you know, two and a half to five gallons of fuel. Not just for yourself, but for helping people out. Uh, but when you have a vehicle that you have to carry everything internally with, I haven't come up with a good solution for that. If anybody has, let me know. And maybe for the entrepreneurs out there, maybe there's a product here. Maybe there's a guaranteed not to smell, guaranteed not to stink up your vehicle, carry gas extra gas anywhere product. Um, I don't know what that product would look like. I don't know what would be required. And I know that there's a huge safety consideration when you're carrying gasoline. So um, that's the best I can do. But the best answer is a good military-grade jerry can. I mean, that really is the right, safe way to do it. Uh, but again, you said you don't think you can get away with it. I'm thinking there's a spouse involved here. Um, but otherwise, let's say... Let's look for what's what is your solution. Your solution is a rule. As soon as you're down to three quarters of a tank, you're looking to fill up. That's your solution. It means more fill ups, but it means that you get the same effect. If you you know if most people fill up at a half tank and you fill up at at three quarters, um, you're getting that extra reserve capacity at all times. And storing fuel at home in good quality gas cans in a shed or a garage or what have you is really something you need to do. Make sure you stabilize that stuff. Uh, best I can do, anybody with a better answer, please let me know. Hey, Jack, Phil in Tucson. Listening to the Oath Keepers interview, and I am fully on board with the fact that the federal government is uh, accountable to the state legislature, who's then accountable to the people. However, what happens if our administration goes and decides to sign an international treaty? It says right in the U.S. Constitution that all, all international treaties are legal and binding. So what happens if a treaty is signed by the administration that is in direct conflict or contrast or undermines our Constitution or our Bill of Rights? Which one holds precedence? Who decides that? And if it's decided that the treaty supersedes our Constitution or our Bill of Rights, what recourse do we then have? Thanks, buddy. Semper Fi. Well, it's a good question, and maybe it'll shed some light on the bullshit nature of these uh, emails that keep going around saying Obama's going to sign a treaty and take your guns away uh, using a United Nations treaty to disarm the American people because it ain't, it ain't going to happen. 
It ain't gonna happen that way anyway. Uh, let's start out with what it takes for a treaty to be, to be ratified. Uh, the president can go out and sign any treaty he wants, and it ain't worth the paper it's written on, and it has no legal ramifications for the United States at all under any, you know, under any uh, circumstances whatsoever, unless it comes along with a two-thirds approval of the United States Senate. According to the Constitution, that's what it takes to ratify a treaty. Again, two-thirds uh, vote of the United States Senate in approval, along with the signature of the President of the United States. So... If they wanted to take away your guns with a treaty, they would already be well on the way to be able to do it with a majority in the in the Senate and a president that wanted to do it. So it would be easier to do domestically under domestic law uh, than something like a U.S. treaty with a foreign entity. Now, as far as you know, the treaty does get ratified, the treaty does pass, and it's in somehow conflict with the Constitution. Direct conflict would be meaning uh, obvious conflict, something that, that clearly violates something that heretofore had been allowed and now is prohibited under this treaty and had heretofore been seen as being protected by the Constitution and basically nullifying that. That should be also uh, impossible from a legal standpoint. The highest law in the land is the Constitution, so just because a provision for a treaty is allowed doesn't mean that the Constitution can be superseded by the treaty. Uh, so to change, to, to make a law that would, uh, that would, you know, go ahead and violate something heretofore constitutionally protected would require first an amendment of the Constitution. And if the treaty were in violation of the Constitution, uh, then the treaty would be null and void and not valid. Even if passed by the Congress and, or the, you know, basically the Senate, but that's one branch of the Congress and the President, it would still not be valid. Now who decides that? Because generally speaking, when things violate the Constitution, they might be pretty cut and dry to us, but they live in kind of a gray zone. Well, the Supreme Court of the United States would decide whether or not it was valid and constitutional. Now, what if a treaty was signed that the people of the United States disagreed with? Well, our recourse is the ballot box and to put people in that would go and a president in that would basically nullify the treaty and say that we are no longer going to honor the treaty. And uh, you might say it's legal and binding, but anything that, the, that we can do, we can also undo. And we can undo it through the same process. And as far as violating treaties, it's not like the United States doesn't have a history of breaking treaties, even one fully agreed upon and signed. You know, if you ask the average Native American, what is a U.S. treaty worth? Well, they'll tell you it ain't worth the paper it's written on anyway. So we already have precedent of, of basically saying the treaty that we signed we will no longer honor. Now, that is damaging to us in the world because then that means a treaty with us doesn't mean anything. And, uh, I mean, one of the first treaties that was, uh, was violated, there was a treaty that we had with the French uh, for the American Revolution. And uh, then the French came back and said, you guys need to honor the, this treaty uh, and help us out with our war against England. And there was a real divide in this country about that because some people said, hey, they did help us with our revolution. We should turn around and help them. They're our allies. And some people still had a lot of love for the mother country, even though they wanted independence. Hey, it's still England. It's still where we come from. You know, never let the sword of the father be, be drawn against the son, that type of thing. And uh, the way we eventually wiggled out of it, John Adams basically told the French, uh, well, our treaty was with King Louis, and he's dead now, so it, the treaty is no longer valid. Uh, so there's a lot that goes into treaties, but the one thing I want to lay to rest today 
is the President of the United States, be it George Bush, Barack Obama, or Mr. Magoo, can sign any treaty he wants, but it has no validity, it has no power, it is absolutely meaningless without a two-thirds majority of the United States Senate. So please, the next time you get an email from the Conservative Center for Action Alerts or whatever crap it comes from that says Obama will take your guns by signing a secret treaty with the United Nations, delete the damn thing, don't forward it, because it's absolute 100% total bullshit. Do I believe that he would do it if he could? Yes. Do I believe that Barack Obama is an enemy of the Second Amendment? Absolutely. 100% so. The guy is as anti-gun as it gets. Fortunately, thanks to Heller versus D.C. and a now strong majority of Republicans in, in the House of Representatives and Democrats that have come over to uh, a more constitutional way of thinking about the Second Amendment due to fear of losing their jobs, um, there's not really a lot of threat to our gun rights right now from the federal government. The primary threats to uh, firearms rights in the United States today are not from the U.N. in a small arms treaty. Uh, they're not from Barack Obama or the federal government. They're at the state level. Uh, they're at the state level in states like New Jersey and Illinois and California. And it's up to the people of those states to do something about it. But if a treaty's ever ratified that's in conflict with the Constitution and even the Supreme Court lays down on the job, then whose job is it to do something about it? The American people. We start with the ballot box, and eventually we go to civil disobedience, and we refuse to obey the treaty on the grounds of it being unconstitutional. That's why this is a republic. Not a monarchy, not an empire, but a republic. Uh, we are actually far from the republic we're supposed to be, but it's the job and the duty of the people, and dare I say the Oath Keepers, to say we will only let this go so far. And that would be a place where I would call for open, I would call for open revolt. Uh, as moderate as I am, if the United States government entered into an unconstitutional treaty, and after all due course of the people to rectify the injustice, and no amendment had been made using the amendment process to the Constitution, and that treaty were to lie in conflict with the, co the government, or with the Constitution, with, and therefore with the people, and we had gone to the Supreme Court, we have gone to our representatives, and they said, screw off, Uh, you will fall under this law of a foreign land, it would be time to take the government back through the same means that our founders took it back. And that's that's kind of dangerous talk. You would call it seditious talk if you wanted to put it down. Um, but I'm putting it with that caveat. When you trash my Constitution, yes. When you totally uh, take away all my means of, of restoring the Constitution, when I get my fellow Americans to see it my way and we come back and we vote for it and we do everything under the law and the law no longer protects us yes at that point we would have to cast off this government and form a new one I pray to God it never happens but if it does I'll be standing at your side let's go ahead and take another question howdy Jack my name's Jason I'm from Houston I'm actually a delivery guy heading up to Dallas right now here nice uh, hey first of all I just wanted to say thank you for uh putting up that permaculture podcast i mean that that alone in my opinion is probably worth the cost of uh, membership and a member support brigade and i wanted to ask you how do you think or or rather when it comes to permaculture if you're in a suburban backyard how would you first begin i i mean i, I realize you're not gonna have a farm or anything like that to work with you know like you're not gonna have 20 acres or anything like that but 
what what should be the first steps toward, I guess, you know, starting a little bit of permaculture yourself in your own backyard? Hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate what you do. All right. Bye-bye. I mean, a little bit, your question's been answered by the, the previous episode that you referenced. I mean, the first thing to do with permaculture is to understand that permaculture is more about design than anything else. And it's about good design, and it's about functional design. And that means before we do anything, we need to understand the area that we're operating in. It doesn't matter if it's a tenth of an acre or ten acres, we still need to do the same things. So just like I said in the episode, you're going to want to plan your zones. And in most residential areas, you're probably better off instead of looking at a five-zone system, a three-zone system. You're looking at zone one is where your kitchen garden, your herb garden, and the things that need daily concerns and cares are going to go. The things that need to be messed with on occasion are going to go in zone two. And the things that are really kind of self-supporting, self-sufficient, at least after the first year of maybe getting them through that and getting them established like some of your longer-term trees and all, will go out in your zone three. That doesn't mean that a tree can't go in zone two. It all depends on how much you have to work with and your spatial requirements and things like that. So figuring out your zones, determining your energy patterns. Again, which way does the wind blow? Do you want to invite the wind in or do you want to block it out? Which way does the sun move across your property in the summer and in, in the winter? And where do your shadows lie? And which shadows uh, are good shadows and which shadows are bad shadows? And can you open it up more and let more sun in? Or do you have too much sun in areas and you want to grow something to shade it out? Remember, permaculture is all the way up to where you live. So things like great sun exposure on your porch may not be what you really want. Because if you want to be nice and comfortable and be able to sit out there. So building something like a pergoda and planting some type of a vine that would go over top of that and let the vine absorb the uh, sunshine, that's fine. But it blocks it from you so that you can then sit underneath and be cool and eating your grapes or whatever you're growing on that vining plant. One of the things you really might want to look out down there is chayote. Uh, or uh, it's also known as pawpaw. Or not pawpaw, what is it called? Uh uh, chocho, choco, uh, choco, or, or a chayote. Uh, looks like a squash, but it's perennial and it grows like a vine. Uh, you also want to make sure you're getting some perennials into your system, even if it's a small system. So some dwarfing trees and things like that. But I guess your first thing is assess the property. What's your slope? What's your rainfall like? What's your water flow like? Uh, where are your energy patterns, your sun and your wind energies? Do you want to bring them in, bring them out? Figuring out what zone one is and planting the kitchen and herb garden in zone one. That's kind of priority one because that's going to require the most intensive management and probably the most intensive work. Moving out into zone two and planting some perennial bushes and vines and trees and into zone three. And then figuring out things like, do you have compost piles and where do they go and how do you make them work with your system? And your compost piles, your worm bits are probably in zone two. You want to go as far as keeping poultry. They're probably out in zone three. Along a fence with a chicken run in a chicken house. You know, the paddock approach that Paul Wheaton recommends is great, but it's difficult in a small suburban yard. You can only go so far with it. Uh, and even if you do it, you probably still want some kind of a run. Uh, that run could then be planted with fruit trees and things like that. What I'm going to recommend for you is to watch a video called Backyard Permaculture. I keep saying the guy's an Aussie. I'm getting the feeling maybe he's from New Zealand. Maybe he's a Kiwi. Um, but uh, I, I'll put a link to it on Google Video. It's free to watch. It's about an hour long, and he does an amazing job of permaculture in a small suburban setting. Uh, maybe that'll give you some ideas. But the first step with permaculture, one acre, a tenth of an acre, ten acres, ten thousand acres. 
assess the land and determine the design goals before you do anything permanent. Because the biggest thing we do in America with our landscaping that's foolish is we don't plan in advance uh, what we're going to do. And there's a lot of great landscapers out there that plan designs that look appealing, you know, with boxed hedges and things like that. But there's almost no one in America other than people that are permaculture students that even know what functional design means. I've been going through this new series I got from Bill Mollison and Jeff Lawton uh, from the Tagari Institute in the Permaculture Institute of Australia. And uh, it's like a 15 DVD set. And Mollison's lecturing at the beginning. And he was talking about how he had a bunch of architects and he went in to talk to them about functional design. And they were like a group of people that were really basically going to bring this hippie guy in and basically tear him apart and show him all their smart ideas with functional design. Before he even started, he said he takes his watch off and lays it down, which I don't get that, but that's his thing. And then he says, can anybody here for me define functional design? And the room was silent. And he didn't say a word for several minutes. He said, so now we've established that none of you know anything about functional design because you cannot even define it. And he did the same thing with another workshop on sustainability. Uh, you know, he said, define sustainability. And it was the same from all these experts that were there to talk about sustainable agriculture. None of them could even define the word sustainable. And, uh, you know, I, I, what, I, what I'm learning from uh, this DVD series so far is that we really have to think more about our design. For every hour of work you do, actual manual labor in a permaculture system, you need to spend anywhere between 5 to 15 hours of thought and planning so that the work, it's not because you're lazy, it's so the work has maximum effect. So that's the best answer I can give you there. Again, I'm going to steer you to that, that video and uh, steer you back to my prior episode and ask you to think more about your property and uh, do a drawing of your property, get your, your energy patterns on your property, and then think in a zone status, one, two, and three, uh, with one being the most intensive management, three being the least intensive management, and a good herb and kitchen garden in that zone one, as close to your property, as, make, as close to your house, that makes sense. Remember, zone zero is inside your home. So it's really a zero, one, two, three approach. Uh, let's go ahead and take the next question. Hi, Jack. Uh, my name is Matt. Absolutely love the show. Thanks for all that you have to offer for us. Um, I have a quick question for you. I'm considering buying um, five to ten acres of a, a wooded area and wondered what you had to say about possibly building a log cabin out of the trees from the property. As I've been doing a little bit of research, I've been uh, seeing that there's different notch systems and kiln-dried wood and this, that, and the other, and whether or not I'm totally crazy to want to try to do something like this on my own, uh, what your knowledge of, of that is, and whether it's even feasible to get enough usable lumber of your own property to uh, take on a project like that. Thanks in advance for your help. Uh, thanks a bunch. I'm going to say you really want to tune in tomorrow and hear about Wafat deconstruction, which is basically the way Paula describes it. When you're inside it, it looks like a log cabin. And when you're outside of it, you barely can tell that it's a house. And uh, it's much more energy efficient than anything else out there, very affordable to build. And because you're only using your timbers on the inside 
and you're doing things a little bit differently than you would with a, with a log cabin, I think that you can use less wood to go further. I'll ask Paul about that for you tomorrow. Now, as far as just building a log cabin with the wood that you have available, I see nothing wrong with it. Some of the sustainability people will be like, oh, no. Well, if you bring the wood in to build a house, whether it's a log cabin or conventional construction from somewhere else, uh, you're still utilizing a resource. If you take it from your own land, it's your resource, and you're responsible for replanting it. And uh, you don't have to clear-cut forest to get you know your timbers out of it. You can take your trees that are suitable for timbers and leave everything else uh, uh, behind. But uh, I think you're going to definitely prefer the Wafati construction. I think it's going to be easier to deal with some of the things like fitting things together, like you're talking with different joints and making sure it's watertight and energy efficient uh, and things like that. So in this game of football, I'm punting until tomorrow, and I will bring up advantages of Wafati over um, conventional log cabin type construction and how to make the best use of the timber that's available on your property with Wafati construction uh, with Paul Wheaton tomorrow. So tune in for that one tomorrow. Otherwise, if you just want to build a cabin, go ahead and do it. I don't have a problem with it as far as a resource utilization Uh, my concern is, as a kid, we tried to do it, and it ain't as easy as it looks. You know, with kids, we whatever we can find, start trying to put a cabin together, and we got it up about a foot high, and uh, gave up on it. Now we didn't have the equipment and tools that you would have, but uh, it was kind of eye-opening for me. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Paul from Melbourne, Australia. I've got another tip for you. I've just come back from the shops, and um, I think. Um, there's definitely benefit to buying things in larger containers because a lot of the time the containers that you buy things when you're buying bigger containers can actually be quite useful. For instance, I normally buy my honey in a one-litre jar and the one-litre jars are really handy for storing things in. Um, other containers that are particularly useful, I don't know, if anyone knows anyone that, uh, that sort of does any weight training, the, uh, the, the containers that the, the protein powder comes in are really handy. And also, I might do a bit of running and uh, sort of rehydration formulas that you can get. They also come in kind of handy containers. So, uh, yeah, just uh, I suppose when you when you're shopping, look at the containers because um, sometimes the containers are quite expensive. And you know, you can you can buy just bought a big jar of pickled gherkins for six dollars. Um, a jar that big would actually cost me more than that probably if I wanted to buy it. So. Uh, I think it's a great idea, and we've done it for exactly what Paul is saying, and we've done it for purely aesthetic reasons. There's been times when we're out, we're looking for a new bottle of wine, and we'll find a bottle that's just a cool-looking bottle, and my wife likes bottles. It's one of the things that she collects, and she has them all up on her cupboard and all. We're like, we don't know if we're going to like this wine or not, but we'll try it. If, if it sucks, we'll... We'll use it for cooking, and then we'll have this really cool bottle. There were some German Rieslings that were like etched glass. They had this beautiful artwork behind them, and she filled them with like colored water so that it would bring that out more. And 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 so I mean, it can be for storage. It can be just for a multifunctional thing. And and I mean, you know, you're talking about like a ten dollar bottle of wine. And like Paul's saying, the container itself, if it was sold for artistic purposes or storage purposes, might cost as much or more as the product that was in the container. Uh, some other things I've used a lot. We have a cat, and we have actually two cats, and one's an outside cat, and one is a blind, half-deaf, not really blind. She's a cross-eyed, directionally hearing impaired. Where she hears sound, but she doesn't know where it comes from. If you yell her name, she looks 180 degrees in the opposite direction, wondering who's over there. 
Uh, so she just can't be an outside cat. Uh, so we have a cat litter box, which I'm not fond of, but I'm responsible before, for because I decided, yes, we could have another cat, and then found out the cat had these problems and can't go outside. So I get to clean the litter. Well, you get the cat litter that comes in the big tubs, and I'm not going to store food in there, but they are great for storing other things. And once we got you know as many as we kind of wanted, uh, we stopped buying it in there because it is a little more expensive in there. We buy the big cheap uh, bags of it, but because it's easy to handle, we take a couple of those and we fill them up for a reserve cat litter so that uh, you know it's easier to pour into the uh, cat box as I'm doing my weekly removal of the old cat litter, which I'm not happy about, but... Uh, Ah, she's a good cat, so I guess she's worth it. But there's probably a lot of containers that people don't realize how useful they are. Um, instance would be milk containers. I always keep about five or six milk jugs, half-gallon ones, because they're just more portable than the big-gallon ones, fully frozen in the bottom of my deep freezer. And if we go somewhere, uh, in addition to any other ice or what have you, throwing a couple of those in a cooler uh, serves a fairly good way of keeping things kind of cool. It doesn't keep things frigid, but things like, you know, getting your fish home from the lake or whatever, it's good enough for that. Um, my grandparents uh, used to always buy milk in the uh, half-gallon cardboard containers and that's a food grade container so they would save those and we would do things with them like you'd come home with a mess of trout we'd fillet them up put them in there and then fill it with water and basically freeze the fish in a block of ice inside the milk jug and uh, that kept the fish from getting freezer burnt and did a great job of it and uh, you know you just bring the whole thing out throw it in the sink and let it defrost and my grandmother's point was that's a food grade container we've paid for we might as well use it. Things like bread bags and stuff she used to save. I don't, I don't save bags from the bread. Uh, I'm bigger on making my own bread anyway, but, you know, she did that. I guess I could see kind of from the big macro container view, uh, down to like simple functional things as well. We need to think about the packaging our stuff comes in. Uh, maybe make choices based on packaging. Sometimes not make choices because, well, this is eco-friendly packaging. But more along the lines, this is functional packaging that serves an additional purpose. So it's great that, you know, this thing's packaged in some biodegradable container or whatever. But if I need a container and I get two in one, then I'm actually, to me, I'm being more soft on the earth from an environmental standpoint because now somebody else didn't buy that and throw it in the landfill and I'm not buying a container uh, that's an additional draw on resources. So great call, Paul. Uh, again, I'm always honored when you or anybody else from you know the UK or I get a lot of calls from the UK and Australia and New Zealand and I get some from other places, but seems like that's the place, maybe it's the English language reason uh, that I get the most calls from. But all of you guys out there in the international space, uh, do not hesitate to call in with your questions or email your questions as well. Those of you that may have an issue with dialing an 866 number, uh, if you don't use Skype or something like that in a foreign country, you have to pay long distance. If you want to get a call to me, I'm okay if you do something like use sound recorder or something like that. Record it and email it to me. I would be fine to put that on the air as well. Uh, just in the email, let me know that's what you've done so I know what the attachment's all about. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. Uh, this is Danny from Kansas. Uh, we've just recently bought uh, six and a half acres, uh, and we're considering considering uh, building a pond uh approximately a half to three-quarters of an acre, and would like your thoughts on uh, building a new pond, pond construction. Uh, we'd like to have it for a backup water supply and a backup food supply and recreation, and I know you can hire uh, professional engineers to design this 
uh, for you. Um, and I've also heard that you can go to your uh, local soil conservation service and that they can help you. Anyway, uh, if we could just hear some of your thoughts on uh, on uh, building a pond and possibly uh, uh, maintaining a pond after you get one built. Uh, keep up the good work, Jack. Love your show. I think I've heard all episodes and uh, I'm going to continue to listen. Again, thanks. Bye. Well, there's some things that I really know about this process and some things that I really don't know. So we'll start out uh, with the things that I really do know and the things that I think I can give you some helpful advice with. Uh, number one, I'm really going to recommend, if you're going to make a, the investment in time, money, labor, uh, put all of it together into pond construction, that you consider thinking about it a little bit deeper from a permaculture standpoint. And there's a DVD available from the Permaculture Institute in Australia called Harvesting Water the Permaculture Way. And uh, most of it is about constructing a pond and some swales that go with that pond and harvesting the hard runoff and the soft runoff of the area. It is not something that's going to be like an engineering level thing, really. Though there are some engineering components of it, like developing uh, contour lines and getting things set up for your excavator that may be very, very beneficial uh, in there. But I think it will help you work with whoever you hire to do the excavation and impoundment uh, at a much higher level. And it's about 30 bucks, and I think it would be with the investment in a pond, it's, uh, it's less than one-tenth of one percent of probably what you're going to put into that pond, so it's going to be money well spent. Uh, the next thing is, your big issue is going to be, and this is another thing I, I, I know, you know, know from what I, where have I speak uh, concretely, what's the soil like, and how much clay content you have, and if you have good clay soil, and you can remove your topsoil and put it aside, and, and as your, your excavator is doing his work, if he can put all the clay in kind of one place and all the other, uh, the rocky, sandy stuff in another place that you can use your own clay on site to do a really good job of sealing your impoundment. And and if you have that, you're blessed and you're lucky and you don't have to bring in any kind of uh, liner. And uh, which would generally be, most people would use bentonite clay, which is inexpensive uh, by unit, but when you look at a very large pond, it can get quite expensive uh, to line a, a pond with bentonite. And for instance, I want to put a fairly large pond, maybe around the neighborhood of a, a half acre, possibly a little bit less based on, I've got a lot of slope to deal with and things like that, uh, in Arkansas. And I've got this like sandy silica based soil with lots of rock in it. And that means that I'm going to have to put in a lot of bentonite, probably six inches of bentonite, uh, to have an effectively impounded pond. And that's going to cost me. I know it's going to cost me and I may do it anyway. Uh, here in, in this part of Texas, I've got black gumbo clay. I can build a pond here as big as I want. As long as I've got enough water catch coming off, uh, I'm going to have no problem sealing it. In fact, uh, you, the, the yard is a pond at some times by itself because this stuff is so uh, so good at retaining and blocking water. So it all depends on the soil you're dealing with. And that's your soil uh, conservation group. That's how they're going to be of most help is evaluating your site and telling you how much, if, if of anything, you're going to have to bring it off site. And sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you think there's plenty of clay to do the job, and then you start digging and you hit a great big vein of sand or rock or gravel or something like that, and then you have to bring in off-site material, or you have to make the impoundment smaller than you originally planned. So those are just some things to consider there. Um, I think a pond is an awesome investment, though. 
and I see it as an investment, and I can't see losing if you do it right. Uh, one of the big things is how much water catchment does your area have? So you can put in a huge hole, and if your area doesn't catch enough water, you've got a problem. And I've seen folks that think, well, I'll just get a, uh, a well, and I'll just have a well pump with like a float system, and I'll use my well to fill my pond up. And I think those people don't really understand the capacity of a pond. Even something that's, let's say, 20 feet uh, by 50 feet uh, by, let's say, about 5 foot deep on average. So again, 20 feet by 50 feet and 5 feet deep. That's that's not very big. You can see that in your head. I mean, 20 feet, you're looking at less than 10 yards. 50, you know, you, you're looking at, what, 20 feet would be about 7 yards? 7 times 3 21. So 7 yards. Uh, 50 feet, you're looking at what? 30 yard, 30 yards is t 30 feet is 10 yards, uh, 15 yards, right? So seven by 15 yards, if that's easier to see in your head. Five feet deep, so up to the average person's chin in depth. Uh, just sticking those numbers into a pond calculator, and I'll put a link to the pond calculator for you today too. And this isn't for like a half acre pond. This is for smaller ponds. But I just want to get you in the mindset of how much water that is. That would be 37,500 gallons just in a 20 foot by 50 foot by 5 foot average depth pond. So now take a half acre with a 5 foot average depth, uh, maybe a deep area, 8 feet, uh, most of it in the neighborhood of 4 feet and some shallows and things like that. And you can see that you're talking about, you know, maybe getting into the, the hundreds of thousands to, to maybe millions of gallons of water. And if you don't have enough, uh, watershed, to fill that. So that's another thing, your soil conservation. And generally, you guys that run your excavator companies are pretty good at, at, at figuring that stuff out as well because it's what they do for a living. So you may not need a professional engineer here. You just may need some contact with your soil conservation people. And maybe you don't need them at all. Maybe all you need is a guy that's a really good excavator that's built ponds in the past. And those guys generally have an eye for it. They can come out and they can look, and they don't even have to run calculations, and they can go, yeah, I can do a quarter-acre pond for you here, and that's going to work, but that's about all I'm, I'm going to be able to pull off for you. Or I can do a half-acre pond, and it'll be stable eventually, but if you go through a dry period, you know, this is the problems you're going to have, and it may take two seasons for it to stabilize and be completely full. So those are the construction things. Now, some other things that I know, and this is stuff I know from more of my studies in freshwater biology and permaculture as well, and pond construction as a whole. Uh, the less of a round hole you make, the better. If you can build something that kind of, kind of goes out with peninsulas back in, so maybe you're looking at, you could actually have a more productive quarter acre pond if you had lots of edges than a half acre pond that's a big circle with a deep hole in the middle. Edges is where everything happens. If you look at a lake, a huge lake, a 50,000 acre lake, all the guys fishing, where are they? They're following the shorelines or they're following uh, pylons off a bridge or even when they're in the middle of the lake, where are they? They're over a hump, which is another type of edge, or they're over a brush pile or they're fishing standing timber. Fish like cover. And the more cover, the more productive the system. Well, edges create that. So instead of trying to construct a pond that's necessarily just a big circle, see if you can work in some edges. Maybe even just one large peninsula. A peninsula and an island, and otherwise a fairly oval shape. There's a reason they do the oval shape all the time. It looks good, uh, and it's a much easier thing and therefore less expensive thing to do. But just a couple jutting points into it, 
Uh, and again, an island is a great idea. An island, if you have waterfowl and all, it gives them a place to kind of get away. And even if you don't have livestock, you know, native birds and native waterfowl and things like that kind of have a, a predator protected area out there. And then it's, an, you know, just, a, just an island. And you've got another edge, a complete additional shoreline. Uh, so you think, well, I lose water by doing an island because that could all be open water. But the edge is more productive than the open water uh, for, for plant life and for animal life, both. So those are some other things to consider. Uh, lastly, I'm going to say make sure that you make your pond deep enough. Uh, shallow ponds have a tendency uh, to get into some real trouble with, uh, with turning green into green pea soup. And no one likes a green pea soup pond. So whatever you can, and not that depth alone will take care of that, but it'll help a lot. And aquatic vegetation will often help hold back blooms. So maybe it's not the greatest thing in the world for fishing uh, to have a lot of aquatic vegetation, but having some of that, um, the nutrient taken up in the pond by your aquatic vegetation is going to do a lot from having excessive nutrient, which is what leads to a lot of your algal blooms, which in certain instances can kill off all of your fish. So there are some chemical treatments you can use that are fairly soft and gentle uh, on the remaining ecosystem and will only have uh, kind of that detrimental effect on that scum and that algae. Uh, but a lot of that can be uh, physically removed in a smaller pond as well. Lastly, is kind of going along with the types of uh, concepts of cover, when that excavation is first done and that pond is empty, you'll have a better opportunity at that point to do things like put in you know, concrete rubble, uh, trees made out of PVC, and things like that than you ever will at any time ever again. So get you know plan that out like get as much material for creating a artificial reef or an artificial forest or things like that. I love PVC the PVC trees because if you're jigging over them or something like that, uh, the hooks tend to not get in and only at that that end tip is where you have an issue. Uh, that rounded part kind of you get very few snags compared to a natural brush pile and they last forever. And that's why a lot of crappie fishermen uh, guides will use PVC trees. They also use that for another reason. PVC PVC is almost the same density of water. So if I build a whole set of brush piles out on a public lake by dumping PVC trees into there, uh, which they just look at the erector set, guys. Think of an erector set. You build a big tree, a big bush set thing out of PVC, and then your bottom trunk you put into like a five-gallon bucket with concrete in it, and you sink it. Uh, some places that's like okay, in some states that might be breaking the law, but these guys do it anyway. And the reason they do it is they take their clients out to these brush piles, and they fish over them. And if they see any other fishermen coming around, they just pull up and go somewhere else, as though they weren't catching anything. And because the PVC is the same density as water, uh, nobody can use a fish finder or a sonar to find their little hidden brush piles. And those guides guard that stuff pretty uh, heavily. But in your own backyard, you could do that as well. So you might want to take to going out finding or pulling up sidewalks and knocking down on uh, uh, center block-based buildings and things like that and getting a good assortment of things. And you can also use some of the trees that your excavator takes down and whatnot and creating your cover while the pond is fairly dry before it backfills in. And the time again to do that is when you first construct it. Lastly, I'm going to really recommend you check out pondboss.com and the forums over there. Every mistake you can make with constructing a pond, those guys have already made it. And every success story with a pond is there, including an old success story for me. Um, you can check out, again, pondboss.com and their forums. Uh, their magazine, if you're going to be a pond owner, is probably worth taking as well. 
Uh, so that's my last recommendation there. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap things up for today. Again, remember, I have Paul Wheaton coming on tomorrow. Uh, actually, I'll be interviewing him in just a few hours about Wall Construction and uh, uh, also getting into some things on Google Culture at the beginning that people have had questions about. Uh, we'll be doing that here in just a bit, and I'll be airing that for you tomorrow. And I will be interviewing the uh, the absolutely insane uh, maniac uh, puppy on crack that is Gary Vaynerchuk about building your own business on Monday, and that will air on Tuesday next week. Uh, those are going to be two really great shows. If you want to be on a show like this, remember, all you got to do is pick up the phone. The numbers you press are 866-65-THINKS. Leave me your question or your comment. I'll try to get you on the air. And with that, this is the Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Shut